Beacon Cycling, a history of our wonderful sport for the discerning listener. This week in cycling history in 1968, Guido Raybrook won Parry Tour after he was set up for the victory by teammate Eddie Merckx. Raybrook and Merckx both joined the FAEMA team for the 1968 season. Although it was an Italian squad, there was a considerable Belgian presence, with 10 of the roster of 25 hailing from Belgium. Merckx had yet to win his first Grand Tour, but having already won Milan San Remo twice along with the World Championships and finished ninth on his debut at the Giro d'Italia, he was already proving that he was a formidable all-round rider. Raybrook was four years Merckx's senior and was no slouch himself. He had won stages in each of the last three Tours de France and had already won Paris Tour twice before. Although the team was focused on Eddie Merckx, Raybrook managed many successes of his own in 1968. He won three stages of the Giro d'Italia, a stage of the Giro de Sardegna and a stage of the Volta at Catalunya. In addition, in each of these races, he also helped Merckx to overall victory. By the time Paris Tour rolled round in early October, Merckx had already won 16 races. Merckx uncharacteristically decided to help his teammate Raybrook win the race as payback for all the help he had received throughout the year. Merckx led out the sprint and Raybrook won the race for the third time, a record which remains unsurpassed. Merckx finished the race in 8th place. Famously, Paris Tour was the one major race on the cycling calendar which Merckx failed to win throughout his career. The closest Merckx ever came to winning Paris Tour was 6th in 1973. That first piece Killian was about uh, Raybrook, and he was a hell of a rider in his own right actually, never mind Merckx. Yeah, I mean, to, to win Paris Tour, I mean, he, he, like I said in the piece, he won Paris Tour three times in a row, and uh, as I've said many, many times on, on this show already, you know, if you can win a race over and over again, um, you know, you might take riders by surprise the first time, but to come the second time and the third time, you know, you you really have to be a classy rider to to uh, to repeat win in these kinds of races. But I have to say, uh, like I, I the I, I'm open to correction on Merckx's uh, willingness to give away this race because I only found that little snippet in one one particular source. I, d- I didn't really. Uh, I didn't get it from um, the, the usual places I get these facts and uh, I, I am actually open to correction on that because uh, it just seems so unmerks like to, to give away a victory like that. Um, you know, I, I, I looked in um, William Fotheringham's Merck's book, I couldn't find any mention of it there and uh, I actually I don't own a copy of Daniel Freib's one yet so I'm not sure if it's in there or not but uh, it, you know, may, maybe maybe something else happened, I'm not I'm not entirely sure. Yeah, I mean, he also won, Raybrook also won Kern Brussels Kern. Uh, he was Belgian national champion and he won the Amstel as well. Um, so, I mean, I don't think he really needed a gift. And I think you're right. I mean, it's so out of character for Merckx in a race that he hadn't won. I mean, you could see him gift in a race that he'd won, you know, two or three times before. But in a race that he hadn't won and famously is, you know, the one classic or semi-classic that isn't in his Palmares. I, I'm kind of sceptical about that one, to tell you the truth. Yeah, and just there's a famous quote by a guy called Noel Van Tiggum who won it in nineteen, who won Paris Tour in nineteen seventy two. It's it's become kind of synonymous with the race now. But he says, uh, between us, Eddie Merckx and I have won every classic that can be won. I won Paris Tour, and Merckx won all the rest. And <laughs> and, and it's you know the the race has become more famous now probably because Merckx didn't win it. And you know that's that's almost the unique selling point of the race. You know, if you can win this, this is something that Merckx never did. And um, you know it's it's a testament to, to the to the man you know that he absolutely won everything else. And you know it's not just the top level races that Merckx won. You know 
the quote there from Van Tiggum is that he won all the classics. Obviously, Merckx won all the Grand Tours as well. But mm-hmm. I mean, if you if if you start looking down at the list of kind of the more second category races, you know, that aren't on the current World Tour, you know, he won all of them as or most of them as well. You know, races you've never heard of. If you look down to the winners, he's just he's all over the the winners list of every single race you can think of. It's amazing, yeah. and um. I mean, a Saturday chipper race somewhere in Belgium, if he was racing it, he'd be racing for the win. Yeah, and that again, that's just why it's so strange that he would give away this victory. And like you say, I mean, uh, you know, he might, I'd say he probably does regret that now if it did happen because it's such a a, a gaping hole in his Palmares, or the only hole in his Palmares. And, um, you, you know, you'd wonder whether he does regret it, especially because, I mean, he was known as this insatiable monster, you know, the cannibal. Anyway, yeah. and, uh, you know, it's not like he was trying to uphold the reputation of being this nice guy that, that you know, rewarded his teammates um, with with these kinds of acts. So, you know, you'd really wonder why, why he did that. But um, uh, just, just to move on to something else as well, um, Mark Cavendish hasn't won it either. And I, I find that interesting because I, mm-hmm. I, came, across, I came across a quote uh, that he, he said... Um, about it was almost four years ago now and he was talking um after he had won Milan San Remo in 2009 and he said I'm so realistic I'm completely realistic about everything if I say I can win something it's because I know I can I don't say I can win if I have doubts if I'm not sure I say I'm not sure people think I'm cocky but I know what I can do and what I can't like when I said I want to win Paris Tour four times in my career, it's because I know realistically I can achieve that. If I get three, I'll keep going until I get four. Now, obviously, he hasn't won it at all yet. And as far as I can tell, he's only actually ridden it once. And, uh, I, you know, I don't know. Maybe, I, I just I wonder why. Um, and I think maybe that he has been... Uh, he, he's, such a, he's such a tour stage-winning machine that uh, it's um, it's money in the bank as far as his team is concerned. You know, if he, if, if he wins four or five or six Tour de France stages, then, you know, he's worth his salary. But uh, I, I just wonder now, you know, he he's... I, nothing has been announced yet, but he's expected to ride for Omega Pharma uh, Quick Step next year. Yeah. And um, I just wonder if he, if, he, if that does end up happening, that, uh, you know, they're much more of a classics team and always have been. And uh, I wonder whether whether he'll have a bit of a freer reign to to chase these these races, you know. The, the later I certainly, in the I mean, I certainly hope so because I would love to see him round out his career. Because as you say, it's money in the bank. It's too easy almost to you know. You, you just expect him to win two stages. And for Sky, for example, for the British public, that's all they want. Yeah. But he he deserves a greater place in history. You know, he deserves to win Paris Tour and, and some of the classics. You know, and. Quick step, I think, will be ideal for that. Yeah, yeah, and and like, I suppose even with Tom Bonin, um, who who has been at Quick Step uh, most of his career, I mean, you you kind of he he did show promise in Paris Roubaix from quite early on. I think he came third in the first ever edition he rode Tom Bonin, but I mean, his career could have gone either way. You know, he was very good at at bunch sprints and you know he won the green jersey and 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 the world championships the same as Cavendish and you know but he because he was on this classics team that they, you know they wanted him to win classics they weren't really concerned with bunch sprints and as it happened but Boonen has kind of lost his appetite for bunch sprints anyway but uh you know you, you you would kind of hope that Cavendish might go the same way and in that same interview um just after he won Milan San Remo in 2009 Cavendish also said that he harbored this um 
th- th- this uh, goal of becoming more like Sean Kelly is what he said, and uh, that was, I. I just think that would be great to see, and well, I love be fantastic. That. Like be I, absolutely I, brilliant. Yeah, and it's it's something I love in, in watching cycling is uh, watching riders try and adapt and uh, you know aim for new goals. Like Fabian Cancellara does it, and uh, I th- I think it's I think it's fantastic to to watch these riders try and uh, try and extend themselves and and win races they've never won before. Now talking about Fool Palmares, you know we're talking about the, the great Eddie Merckx. Scott and I were having a bit of a discussion on the Velocast, and I need to get your opinion on something. This Wiggins going for the Giro Vuelta thing, what do you think of that? Um, I, I, yeah, I, I heard the discussion that yourself and Scott was having. I, I think it's brilliant again. Um, you know, uh, I, I, like ha- having a much more full... Like, I don't think Wiggins will... Uh, Wig- the legend of Wiggins, I don't think, will be improved if he wins the Tour next year. I know that's no. going to sound silly. But uh, you know, if, if he's, oh, I've won the tour twice. It, you know, it's is it is it really better than winning the tour once? I I, I don't know. Maybe I don't know. Maybe that sounds stupid. But to to win all three Grand Tours to me is better than winning the tour twice and nothing else. I think it's fantastic. And and for him to to again, kind of, it it would be new new ground for him trying to extend himself over two Grand Tours in a year. You know, he he he's never tried to to peak for two grand tours before and uh I, well i suppose maybe that's not true in 2010 he, he uh or 2011 was it he crashed into tour well he was in he, he had to try and peak yeah for well yeah so so to approach the season with with these two separate goals in mind um is really really again it's really interesting and uh i, ha- I have to say i've 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 sent sent a few tweets on on this recently and and uh it was it was after an article. Actually, it was after an article that Shane Stokes had written about this decision um, that Wiggins might take to go for the Giro Vuelta. That uh, he really it, it, it kind of seems an, after he does that an obvious progression that he might go for the hour record. Yeah, that'd and, be you know, good. and you know people were replying to me saying, "Ah, the hour record. It's it's kind of lost. It's it's mystique. It's nobody cares about it anymore." And and that that might be true to an extent. I mean, it's a long time since anybody tried to break the hour record. And in fact. The, if you ask anybody who holds it now, they probably won't be able to tell you because it's not Chris Boardman anymore. It's this this Russian called uh, his name Sosenka. Uh, yeah, well, he's been done. I mean, he's uh, incredibly incredibly tall. I actually think the UCI killed it when they they introduced the athletes there because it was like F one. You know, it was a technological challenge as well, and that was part of the interest. Yeah, and 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 I mean that is true. It has. I mean, you know, it's lost its its charm or its its uh, mis- you know magicalness that it used to have but you know Wiggins could bring that back you know I mean he's such a global star now uh, and you know if they if they put it live on Sky you know that would be perfect for for everybody involved in in the effort you know put it live on Sky you know have it in the velodrome in London or in Manchester probably London and you know erect big screens outside i i think it could uh, and i don't know maybe have a couple of accompanying documentaries for the build-up it could be massive i think and uh you know the, the type of rider that he is with his track background he's an incredible time trialist i mean he really really would have a great chance doing it completely he's got a wonderful aero position as well you know i mean i think he could easily go for it and, and do it you know do some justice to it and he can get a flat back and drop bars as well. It'd be good over maybe make a weekend of it, and he could do you know the athletes are and the you know the ultimate unrestricted one as well. The next morning, like Aubrey. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, 
Why not? Anyway, actually, one thing I love talking to you about is you've made me think about something that had never occurred to me before. You did it last week. <laughs> and it's that you actually achieve greatness by winning the tour. But thinking about it now, the next step, you know, the next kind of bottom line, if you like, is you've got to win five. Anything between one and five is kind of pointless. Yeah, and again, I mean, it kind of sounds ridiculous to suggest that winning the tour at any stage is pointless, but I know what you mean. You know, it it, it is uh, it is the next milestone. Um, yeah. yeah, certainly. And, and I mean, he's not going to win five at this stage. Uh, you no. know, he's too old. But uh, yeah, to, to, to full out his Palmares with, with victories in the other two Grand Tours would be, be fantastic. Clearly, I mean, clearly it's no pointless. I mean, because winning a tour is a great thing and to win four would be majestic. But to cement your place in history, you know, disregarding, you know, a certain Texan, you have to join the I've won five club, I think. Anyway, we're going back to somebody else who's only won one. One of my favourite cyclists from history, um, a, a Frenchman, and one of the bolshiest characters ever to throw a leg over a bike, Jean Robic. In 1980, Jean Robic died in a car crash. Robic won the first Tour de France after World War II in 1947. Before the Tour, Robic had already suffered the ignominy of not being selected for the main French squad for the Tour, the leader of which was to be René Vieto. Instead, Robic had to settle for a place on the regional West France team. Vieto, as expected, took the lead very early on in the race, and with just three stages remaining until Paris, Vieto remained in the yellow jersey. But in the only time trial, a whopping 139 kilometres, Vieto lost minutes to his rivals and conceded the race lead to the Italian Pierre Brambilla. On the eve of the final stage, Brambilla looked set to become just the third Italian to win the Tour de France. But Robic didn't feel like riding a procession to Paris. He lay in third place overall, 2 minutes and 58 seconds behind Brambilla, and midway through the stage, he attacked, taking with him his compatriot Edward Fachleitner who was a further four minutes behind Robic on GC. They soon had many minutes advantage over the peloton. Robic reportedly turned to Fachleitner and said, You can't win the Tour because I won't let you go, so let's ride together and I'll give you 100,000 francs. The pair stayed clear all the way to Paris, where Robic claimed the yellow jersey for the first and only time in the race. Fachleitner had done enough to take second place, and Brambilla ended the race in third, over ten minutes behind Robic. There were cries by the Italians afterward that the French pair had been receiving tows from photographers' motorbikes. Brambilla was apparently so disgusted at the outcome that he chopped his bike into pieces and buried it in his back garden. Although he was a tour winner, Robic was disliked by many in the peloton who saw him as spiteful and cocky. He was a theatrical man who blamed the world and its mother for his many defeats. One story comes from the 1952 tour where he punctured on the climb to Sestriere. With his spare tyre around his shoulders, he could have fixed the problem himself but instead he decided to pump up his puncture, cycle on, dismount and pump it up again, all the while bemoaning the absence of his team car. Robic would never again taste overall victory in a major race. He retired in 1961 and opened up a pizzeria. However, his gastronomical career did not last long and his marriage also eventually ended. In 1980, when returning from a party which was actually celebrating Yup Zutemelk's victory in that year's tour, he was involved in a car crash and died aged 59. Now... Jean Robic was, uh, he was a man who gathered, um, he had more nicknames than he had wins, let's put it that way. Yeah, the, the couple of sources I read there, one of them says he was nicknamed BK, which was short for Robbie K, which uh, is, is, I believe, is a term of endearment in France, which kind of means sweetie pie, which is an ironic label given to, Ro- you, you say Robic, I said Robic, I don't know whether I'm right or you're right, my pronunciation is ah, well, great. I mean, we're, we're probably both equally wrong, let's <laughs> 
but uh, it was an ironic name for him because he was remembered as being a very very ugly man <laughs> and, well they, i mean the, the other two nicknames i've got is one um which we'll come to in a moment is that he was nicknamed leatherhead yeah but but my favorite is he was called the hobgoblin of Brittany. <laughs> Uh, which which was really harsh. I mean, he did look like a gargoyle. He was, ext- I mean, he would look Andre Greipel, look like a fashion model. Let's put it that way. Yeah, and he ha- he has these unfortunate looking ears, which, like you say, a hobgoblin esque. And um, yeah, he the Leatherhead nickname was apparently when he 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 had this crash in Paris Roubaix early on in his career, and I think he might have cracked his skull. And uh, very similar to the to the Chelsea goalkeeper Peter Cech, ever since then he he wore this. I mean, Peter Cech wears a like a, a rugby scrum cap. I don't yeah. know what it existed back then, but it was something similar. He had this leather contraption on his head, which made his ears look even more ridiculous than, than normal. You know, so it was very, it was very unfortunate for him to to. Uh, to be clear, we're not talking about you know a hairnet helmet, a la the classic kind of Merckx look. We're talking about a full-on leather helmet that goes down over his ears and is attached with a chin strap under his chin. Yeah. Yeah, it was a very unfortunate look. But I mean, this is this is the way he he rode around uh, ever since. And I mean, you know, he he uh, he won the Tour de France at his first attempt, which isn't something that happens very often. And uh, that was something I was going to say to you as well. Um, I, I mean, it's very easy to say something will never happen again, but in this day and age, it's it is hard to see that happening. You know, a, a rider winning the Tour at his first attempt. You know, like take Andy Schleck for instance. You know, he rode his first Tour in two thousand and eight. And he spent the whole time working for Frank Schleck at Carlos Sastre. And, mm-hmm. you know, there is a certain, uh, you know, cut your teeth stage that riders go through these days. And, um, you know, I, I, I'm not sure whether a rider will be strong enough and capable enough of winning the tour, having never ridden the tour before in this day and age. Would you, would you agree with that? Yeah, I think it, I, the, the day's gone. I mean, simply because there's too much money. I mean, people won't... The only way I could see it happening would be if a really, really talented rookie got in a huge break at the start of the race. Yeah. Uh, because other than that, they're going to sacrifice themselves in service of an established, you know, Grand Tour leader, clearly. So I think those days are gone. I still I still think we need to get over to people just how ugly Jean Robic was, actually. <laughs> I mean, he also, he also wore a pair of goggles with that leather helmet, and he looked like, if you've ever seen... Um, you know those fake alien autopsy films? Yeah. <laughs> he looked exactly like that. I mean, he was a tiny wee man, but he looked like Mr. Punch in goggles. And, I mean, he, he was so foul-mouthed, apparently, that the, the entire peloton were against him because he was, he, you know, you've been in bike races, Killian. I mean, it's it's not a place where people watch their P's and Q's. Well, well Robic was... Sorry, it was yeah. apparently so sweary that people got annoyed at that within the peloton. Well, it, it's funny. The the um the, as I was reading stories about him, the person that kind of he most compares to today, I think, is Thomas Vockler. You know, pe- people maybe not his ugliness, maybe not quite. <laughs> although, <laughs> although although Vockler can pull some incredible faces when he wants to, but you know, Vockler has this reputation of of. Uh, you know, people don't really like him because he attacks at awkward moments and he, he does this, you know, he pretends to, to be suffering and then all of a sudden he attacks. Like, I, I remember um, uh, the Inner Ring blog, he, he tweeted um, during the tour that Vockler was asked, um, do you, it was halfway through the Tour de France and the polka dot jersey competition hadn't really taken off yet. And Vockler was asked before the start, you know, oh, there's plenty of mountains today. Can you see yourself, uh, you know, mounting a serious challenge for the polka dot jersey? And Vockler dismissed it and go, you know, I, I don't even know how many mountains points I have. 
and then uh, Inner Ring said, uh, you know, translation, Vokler will be in the polka dot jersey at the end of the day. <laughs> and, and, and he was, you know, and he, he obviously went on to win it. But, you know, he, he, like the, the, these kind of riders, they, and, and as well, from reading the stories about Jean Robic, or Robic, um, he, he, uh, he comes across as this guy who, who maybe didn't win as much as he probably could have. I mean, he obviously won the Tour de France. His, his, tour, his career kind of didn't, uh, it, that, that was its peak. Really. Mm-hmm. He, he didn't really win that much after, afterwards. He won more Tour de France stages, but he didn't really win that much. And, uh, but but he, was, he was written about because he was entertaining to readers. He, he was this, this flamboyant, controversial character who, like you say, pissed people off in the peloton. And, you, you know, when, you, when you're looking for a soundbite before or after a stage, even if, he didn't, even if he didn't perform well, he was always good for it. And, uh, you know, you'd wonder whether, you know, these guys are as, maybe not so much then, but those kind of characters now, maybe they're as valuable to a team as guys that do win. I mean, they're, at the end of the day, they're given their sponsor exposure anyway. Oh, completely. And, and like, take a guy like, I don't know, Jens, Jens Vogt, he, I mean, he wins an awful lot, but people wouldn't be as interested in him if he wasn't so entertaining. You, you know, he, he gives incredible sound bites in interviews and, and on Twitter, and he's just this amazing interview. And, you know, if he was more of the stereotypical German, you know, very straight-laced and, and not so entertaining, he wouldn't get half the Collie Minches that he does. And that's the impression you get from reading stories about Sean Robich, that he was just this guy that pe- uh, journalists enjoyed writing about because he was so controversial and annoying. <laughs> It's funny, actually. I'm just shaking my head, laughing, thinking about Scott watching the, uh, you know, the Tour de France and uh, the the Robert's one because 139 kilometre time trial would have Scott boiling. <laughs> I mean, it's just a huge, huge long time trial. I miss those days, you know. I mean, I, I wasn't even born, but can you imagine watching a 139 kilometre time trial or riding the bloody thing? Well, I think maybe Bradley Wiggins would win five Tours de France if that was the case these days. No, but, no completely, completely. But, so something else I was going to say to you as well, the stories that, that I read about Jean Robert before this, that, that of that particular incident when he attacked on the final stage of Paris, you know, the, the articles that I read were actually written in the last 20 years, so they weren't articles at the time. And they all uh, mentioned the fact that it was, it's, it's you know, it's not... It's not cool to attack on the last stage. Mm. And um, I mean, it's not now, but I'm not sure when that tradition began. And I'm not actually sure if that was the case in 1947. I mean, I know, I know it kind of gets gets people's goats a little bit these days. You know, why, why is it a procession? Why do they not attack? But uh, I, I'm not actually sure when that became a thing. And I, Did, I'm, not, neither, I'm not sure. Neither am I. I, I yeah. well, we're going to have to find that out, mate. Yeah, and I'm not sure if it was a thing in 1947, whether that, you know, those morals or rules were just applied retroactively, retrospectively with those articles written in the last 20 years. I'm not sure whether that was the case in 1947. So maybe we're doing Robert a disservice. I don't know. Maybe. I mean, the one thing I would say is he was almost universally despised by his peers in the peloton. Um, although, you know, he'd, he'd come round a bit. Apparently he'd, he'd softened in his old age, which is why he was actually going to a party for... Uh, you know, Jupes is the milk victory in the tour. But the other side to the man is, like uh, like his fellow Breton, Louis Bobby, he actually carried messages for the resistance in his bike. Uh, so he was, a, he was a brave man with some principles as well as being a, a bit of a tosser. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, nicely put. <laughs> anyway, let, let's finish off with a glimpse into the early days of Dave Brailsford's uh, master plan for British cycling. 
In 2004, Charlie Wigelius signs for the Italian Liquigas team. The British rider, born in Finland, is a quintessential example of a domestique. Wigelius rode for seven different teams in a 13-year career and didn't win a single race. Vigelius was signed by the Liquigas team, who had been included as part of the inaugural Pro Tour starting the following year. He would act as a mountain domestique for the team's leaders, Franco Pellizzotti, Stefano Garzelli and Danilo De Luca. He was an effective teammate, as Garzelli, De Luca and later Vincenzo Nibali all racked up significant wins with him on board. And in 2005, Vigelius was selected for the Great British team for the upcoming World Championships in Madrid. This was the third year running in which Vigelius had been selected for the Worlds to represent his country, and he was part of a six-man team which also consisted of Roger Hammond, Steve Cummings, Robin Sharman, Bradley Wiggins and Tom Southam. The course for that year's Worlds in Madrid was relatively flat, and the favourites coming into the men's road race were the likes of Eric Zabel, Tom Boonen, Robbie McEwen and Alessandro Pitaki. David Brailsford was busy growing into his role as the performance director of British Cycling, and it was Brailsford himself who had the final say in the selection of the team lineup. The British road team manager at the time was John Herity. Between them, the decision was made that Britain's best chance of a medal lay with Roger Hammond, who had recently won a sprint stage at the Tour of Britain, ahead of national teammate Robin Sharman and a very young Mark Cavendish. As the race unfolded, it became apparent that Vigelius had little interest in riding for his British teammates and was more concerned in working with the Italians. Vigelius worked hard for the Italians in closing down dangerous breakaways, but strangely, despite the fact that Vigelius rode for the Italian Liquigas team, none of his trade teammates were actually riding for Italy that day. Ultimately, neither Britain nor Italy would achieve their goals, as both left empty-handed while Tom Bonin won the rainbow jersey. Roger Hammond was disgruntled after the race. He said, I don't know why he took the initiative to ride. It wasn't our team plan, and I still don't think it was up to us to do that. We didn't have enough riders as it was. I don't know what was going on. We will find out later on. Dave Brailsford was scathing in his assessment of the behaviour. He said, The elite men's road team for the World Championships in Madrid was chosen with a clear strategy, which identified a single team leader. The remaining riders in the team were expected to totally dedicate their efforts to supporting him. In the event, both Tom Southam and Charlie Vigelius ignored this team strategy and instead chose to ride for themselves, an act which was totally unacceptable. I have spoken at length to Tom and Charlie, and they both recognise that they made a grave error of judgement. Whilst they have both apologised for their actions, this type of behaviour by a GB rider will not be tolerated now or at any time in the future. As a consequence of their actions, I cannot foresee the circumstances under which Tom or Charlie would ever be selected for GB or England again. This incident led to the resignation of John Herity as British road team manager, a post he had held for seven years. And true to his word, Brailsford never again selected Charlie Vigelius for the British team for the World Championships. Even then, you know, all those years ago, uh, we saw a glimpse of Dave, Brail Dave Brailsford who, um, you know, hand of iron over the, the British team. And it's, it is a glimpse of the, how, you know, we got Bradley Wiggins winning the tour, for example. It's through that kind of bloody-mindedness that he, you know, with Southam and Charlie Vigelius never reigned in again. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's true. I mean, like I said, he he did. He kept to his word. You know, they they never got selected again, and uh, it's it's kind of uh, it's it's funny when you look at the the Olympics road race this year. You know, you had guys like um, Kirienka and uh, Bernard Isel as well was quite clearly doing turns for the Great British team on the on the front when when Britain were trying to keep it together for Mark Cavendish. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I mean, I don't know whether any money changed hands. We'll, we'll never know. But, you know, Kirienka uh, uh, has obviously since signed for Team Sky. Uh, Bernard Eisel was 
part of Team Sky at that stage and has always been Mark Cavendish's shepherd in the peloton. So, I mean, we're not idiots. Like, they, they, they were clearly working for, for Team GB. And I, I guess it shows how far that the team have come, that, you know, they're no longer losing riders to these, you know, uh, quirks of, of the of the national teams set up. They're, they're gaining them, and they're, they're one of the powers now that can afford to maybe hire is the wrong word, but to, to use these mercenaries that are willing to, to pimp themselves out on these races. And, and that's what's so fascinating about the world's road race and, and the Olympics. I mean, they're, they're both uh, run with national teams. But, it, you know, these guys in trade teams for so long and then for one day of the year, they're expected to come together. And, and it, that, that's such a massive fascination of this particular race is how the teams organize themselves and who ends up riding for who. And these little... Um, strange arrangements that that emerge, and I remember you, yourself yeah. and Scott talking about the team time trial and and the the world's team time trial that they had this year, and that that was done with trade teams. And there is this this uh, concerned mumbling that you know maybe the UCI plan on making the whole world championships um, run under trade teams, which would be a travesty because it's it's so interesting watching how these relationships emerge throughout the, in the run-up to the race and during the race. It, it, it's, it's a massive uh, selling point for the race and why it's so interesting. Oh, no, completely. I mean, it's, it's the, the wheels within wheels as you watch the race develop. And, you know, you even have, um, not even on, on kind of trade team things, you have friends riding for each other. You know, it's, it's one of the fascinations and subtleties of the sport that I think would be ruined if it went to trade teams. But they, I mean, they might do it if it makes them more money. But it would be a travesty if they did. Yeah, and and um, one of actually one of the interesting things. I mean, I've always known this the story of Wigelius, and you know, he was a turncoat and a traitor, and he he rode for the Italians. But I always kind of assumed that there was uh, plenty of his trade teammates on the Italian team that day, but there wasn't. You know, no. I, that, that's kind of assumption that I've made. I'm sure others have made. And uh, the same goes for Tom Southam. I mean, when this story gets told. Um, I, I didn't know Tom Southam was involved, was lumped in with this controversy. I, I always thought mm-hmm. it was just Charlie Regalius, but it was Tom Southam as well. He was riding for Barlow World at the time. And there was a few Italians on that Barlow World team, but no, none of them were um, on the Italian team on the world's, at the World's Road Race that day either. So, you know, you had these two guys who were riding for Italy, essentially, and mm-hmm. but, but with none of their trade teammates on the Italian team, which was strange. And, I mean... You know, you'd have to come to the conclusion that there was a bit of financial re- recompense for, for their efforts that day. I mean, it, it'll I th- never. I think that goes without saying. I mean, there was definitely a cash cash under the table change dance because otherwise there was no reason for them to do it. No, and and it's it's uh, like cycling is, is is such a strange sport in that you know the, you have teams riding for one guy and it's one guy across the line and it it is very strange and it's hard to explain to uh, people that aren't, haven't been fans of the sport for, for a long time and if you're trying to explain how things work. And it, it, it's an amazing source of fascination for them as well that, you know, oh yeah, bribe, bribing to win races, yeah, that happens all the time. <laughs> people kind of go, what? You know, <laughs> is that not against the rules? And and it, it obviously is against the rules, but it's almost impossible to prove it. I mean, you know, you had the case of Vinokurov, uh, who, who allegedly paid off, um, God, I've forgotten who it was now, he paid off in Liege, Bastogne Liege. I've forgotten too, actually, but uh... it was a, it was a Russian, I think. Anyway, and and there was you know this allegation that that he had done this, but I mean, you know, unless you actually see him hand, handing the money, which almost happened with Vinokurov with those emails that emerged, but you know, you know, unless you actually catch them handing the money, it's very it's it's impossible to prove 
why riders are are doing what they're doing in the race you know what their motive is or or what their orders are it, it's just impossible to prove you can guess and you can probably be right but uh you know you're never going to catch these guys and um it, 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 it's like apart from you know doping is obviously a, a much more serious problem but it, it's kind of it's it's a form of i don't know what you would call it cheating I, I guess it is that's accepted and almost uh, uh heralded as a as a a really interesting part of the sport that would be like you say would be a tragedy if it wasn't if it wasn't yeah. part of it it makes I mean, it makes it makes the ends of races much more interesting to to speculate on oh there i see they're talking to each other i wonder what they're saying you know <laughs> my, my my all-time favorite actually was the you know when ulrich was we might have talked about this before and arcalis or arcalis um with i think it was richard veronk and there was a piece in the live telly where Ulrich actually just, you know, the, the thumb and forefinger rubbing together thing. <laughs> and it, it was so obvious. And, you know, Veronk shook his head and Ulrich just took off and took the stage. Oh, so, uh, I mean, it, it's what actually, it is cheating, but it's, it is part of the history of the sport. And it's, it's part of the intrigue that I love. Um, and, you know, if the UCI aren't going to hammer down on doping, why the hell would they hammer down on, you know, good, honest commerce? Yeah, exactly, and and it's it's an opportunity for for um, riders on smaller teams in the worlds. You know, like the big teams all get nine riders these days. Um, you know, like Britain have established themselves now amongst the big teams, and and Italy and Spain and and France. Actually, maybe not France anymore. They had a smaller team this year, but you know these these big countries have loads of riders, and you need loads of riders in the worlds to win it, as Britain proved in. Um, 2011 when you know they needed every one of their of their team to get Cavendish mm-hmm. over the line first and uh, but but if, if you're a, a decent rider on a team which only has two or three I mean it's it's an opportunity for them to make a few bob you know it's an opportunity for them to say okay I'm not going to win this race I know I'm not everybody knows I'm not I can't but you know I'll, I'll work for you and you know g- give me a bit of money and and, and you know it's hard to it's hard to um, deny those guys that, that opportunity, and uh, you know, unless unless you are a really really strong rider on a small team, you know, like I think Tor Hushoft won it in two thousand and ten. Yeah, um, I, I think he uh, maybe it was only Edvold Bolsenhagen. He might have had Alexander Kristoff as well, but he only had one or two teammates. And uh, un- unless you're really really strong, like you can imagine Peter Sagan winning the worlds with a relatively small team in the future. But you know, if you're a guy like Kirienka or Isil who ends up on these tiny teams, you know what. What, take the money. What, yeah, take the money, absolutely, yeah. Anyway, on that shocking bombshell in which uh, Killian and John approve of cheating within professional cycling, <laughs> uh, we will finish this week's show. It's been a blast this week, Killian. I mean, that's, I've, I've had a lot of fun and I will endeavour to edit it properly before I release it this week. Um, and you can follow Killian on at Irish Peloton on Twitter. Uh, I'm at Sofa Boy, and we look forward to talking to you next week.